All right, I'm going to tell you guys something about me. You might not know this about me, but you probably do know this about me, and it's this. Uh, I'm a bit of a nerd, okay? So I'm a bit of a nerd, all right? And so some of those laughs felt like, yeah, we do know that. But, um, and I have shame about it because I grew up in the time when if you were a nerd, it wasn't cool to be a nerd. Like in my time, true nerds were ashamed to be called nerds, okay? Like that's what it was. Now it's very socially acceptable to be a nerd, and I'm thankful for the strides we've made as a nation on that. But, uh, but, uh, but I'm a nerd. And one of the nerds' biggest problems is this. The things that we are nerdy about are often things that we can talk about for hours, okay? And, and here's what will often happen. Somebody will politely, who's not a nerd, just kind of ask us, uh, us about something we care about, and we will just start rambling on and on and on about this thing that we're really nerdy about, often missing social cues uh, where most people would say, oh, they're backing away right now. I should stop talking about this, we will be like, no, I'm just excited that I get to talk about this with someone. And this is the nerd's plight, okay? And so part of what happens with that is often only your closest friends, if you're a nerd, are often other nerds because you can just ping pong off of each other for hours on these topics that you can ramble on for hours, but everybody else in society says, okay, like, please just dial it back a little bit. And so because I'm a nerd, there's just certain topics you should not ask me about if you don't want a long answer, okay? There's just certain topics, right? If you're going to ask me about the Suns or Survivor or video games or who should play the next Superman, like you shouldn't ask me those questions because I'm going to have long answers. I'm going to be able to ramble on. I'm going to be able to talk about these things at length because I'm a nerd, okay? And today, we're starting the seven-week-long series in Romans chapter 8 that we're calling Life in the Spirit. So we're starting a seven-week-long series just in Romans chapter 8 called Life in the Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 was written by this guy named Paul. And frankly, Paul was a nerd, okay? Paul was a nerd. I know you're like, oh, that's blasphemous. No, it's not. He's not God, okay? Um, Paul was a nerd. More specifically, Paul was an Old Testament nerd. Like, this guy knew the Old Testament well. He would nerd out over the Old Testament. And, and, and here's the thing about, about nerds. Sometimes they are so deep in on a topic that they become confusing to listen to. They might be saying the right things, but they just become confusing to listen to. In fact, look at what 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says about, about Paul and his writings. I love what Peter, Peter, who hung out with Jesus, this is what he says. Verse 15, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave, gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And then pay attention to this part. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable, unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Oh, man, I can't tell you the relief 
I felt the first time I read those verses on my own. When I read those verses, I was like, thank you, Peter, right? Because I had been reading, if you don't know, Paul's written all these letters in the New Testament. I had been reading all these letters of Paul's in the New Testament, and I would read it, and I would be like, this is difficult. Like, some of the things in here are hard for me to understand. Meanwhile, all the super preachers are going, no, it's great, I love it, I understand everything perfectly. And I go, no, you don't. And so I love that Peter, Peter was like, I got to put a disclaimer in here, right? Like God was like, Paul's letters are, are my word, okay? They're going to be the scriptures, but somebody's got to put a disclaimer in there about that. Like somebody's got to be like, hey, listen, yes, they're God's word, but they're kind of hard to read, right? Like so I love, uh, I love that that was in there. And so Paul, I think some of his letters, they're hard to read, again, because I think Paul is a nerd, and so one of those places where you, you find the complexity of Paul's theology and what he's laying out and what he's talking about, what he's nerding out over, is the book of Romans in, in, in general. And so he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote all sorts of uh, New Testament books. And so if you don't know Paul, just a little bit of background on Paul. So he wrote the second most words in the New Testament. Luke actually wrote the most words in the New Testament when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And so he has Paul beat. And then Paul writes the second most words that are in our New Testament that are our scriptures. And so Paul's background, if you don't know Paul's background, he, he grew up Jewish. He was a, a zealot. He was, very, he was a religious zealot. He was Jewish. He was a Pharisee. And so when the Christians started coming around and they started saying, Jesus is like the next part of our faith, he saw that as blasphemy, and so he started persecuting Christians all over the land and finding ways to persecute them, throw them in jail, do all kinds of things to them, until one day when, it, when he was on his way to persecute more Christians, God just stops him, and he has this encounter with God that forever changes him. And then God kind of reorders Paul's life so that he becomes the chief tool that God uses not to help Jewish people come to faith in Christ, but the tool that anyone that's non-Jewish that God uses to come to Christ. That God uses Paul specifically to do that. And so that's a little bit of Paul's background. But what a lot of us don't realize is Paul probably spent something like 14 years or so before he starts this ministry where he's going on these missionary journeys that we read about in Acts, he probably, scholars believe it was probably about 14 or so years where he was like just a Christian, where he probably just lived in, in just one place. And, and here's what I think Paul was doing over those 14 years. Cliffhanger. Well, here's what I think he was doing. I think he was nerding out. <laughs> I think this guy was nerding out. I think he was trying to figure out how this Old Testament that the Christians used as their scriptures as well, how the Old Testament that he loved and he knew well, I think he was trying to figure out how that made sense in light of Jesus. And so he's just nerding out, trying to figure out how, how the Old Testament and all that God had done before made sense in light of Jesus, right? Like he's spending a lot of time doing this. He, he was this brilliant Jewish person, and he's, going, he's saying to himself, how do I reconcile Jesus with my Jewish faith? He's saying, how are they connected? He's saying, he's saying to himself, what was the point of everything that came before Jesus, right? Like, why aren't the Christians just abandoning all of that? And Paul, this nerd, and again, I can say that because I am one, he, he came up with this really strong but often complex theology explaining 
how the Jewish faith can come into harmony with Jesus. And often when you read it, it's a little bit confusing. And one of the places where he details a, a, a lot of the complexity of his thoughts on the Old Testament and how it harmonizes with Jesus is the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 8, where we're going to be at for seven weeks, is the culmination of everything that Paul was talking about in Romans 1 through 7, okay? And, and it, so Romans 8 is almost the culmination of this, this harmonization that Paul was, was doing between the Old Testament and Jesus. And Paul, he does it brilliantly, but because he's brilliant, it's complex. Romans 8 is complex, and Romans 7 and before is complex, and Romans 8 in particular is really dense. There's a lot jam-packed into Romans 8. And so when we're in this series, where we're just in one chapter for seven weeks, we're going to just take it a few verses at, the at a time. And it's probably good that we only take it a few verses at a time because of its, because of how complex it can be and how it's, it will be good for us to kind of just camp out and understand these things that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 a, a little bit uh, more thoroughly. And so uh, we're also calling the series Life in the Spirit because all throughout Romans chapter 8, what you're going to see is how the Holy Spirit's work is really integrated into the Christian life. And not only that, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit is God doing the works of God. Okay, We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. I don't know how to explain the Trinity because it's unexplainable. That's how like different and other other that God is than us. But the Holy Spirit is God. And what we're seeing in Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit is, is God doing the work of God himself. Okay, so Romans chapter 8, that's where we're going to be. A lot of people call it like the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, some, a lot of people, it's their favorite book of the Bible. It's my dad's favorite book of the Bible. It's John Piper's favorite book of the Bible, if you're wondering. Um, so it's a lot of people's favorite book of the Bible. And so uh, it, it's going to be fun for us uh, to get into the nitty-gritty of this book, of this chapter, really, for seven weeks. But I do want to warn you. I want to warn you today. Today, we're going to nerd out a little bit. Okay, we're going to nerd out a little bit. This sermon is going to have a lot of moving parts, okay? Um, uh, you're going you're gonna to have to listen to me ramble on a bit about Paul's theology here because his theology is complex. And sure, I could just take the main ideas away and they'd still be right without looking at some of the complexity of, of Paul's theology. But you know what? You have me as a preacher, so I'm saying, no, let's go into the complexity a little bit. And so... Um, and so we're going to really kind of look in and look at how Paul talks about it. And Paul himself, uh, in a holy way, rambles on throughout Romans. And it's because he's a nerd, and often nerds know something we don't, that certain topics are far more complex than what we want them to be. And so Paul, we're really going to, we're going to nerd out with Paul today, and it would probably be easier not to, and better preachers than me would not do that with you, but... Um, we're going to do it. So I just want to warn you about that. So, so what exactly will we do today? We're going to read the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. And then we're going to see how this text, how Romans itself, how Romans chapter 8, but Romans as a whole, interacts more specifically with this thing called the law. 
we're going to see how, how Paul talks about these different things that he mentions in Romans and how they interact with this thing that the New Testament and the Old Testament talks a lot about called the law. Okay, and so there's four parts to our sermon as we look at that. The four parts are we're going to look at Paul and the law. The second part is we're going to look at sin and the law. And then we're going to look at Christ and the law. And then we'll look at the Holy Spirit's new law. Okay? Does that make sense? Let me take a quick drink, and then we'll hop into it. You can start to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in the first four verses. But it will be on your screen as well. <clears throat> All right. Verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay. That's where we're stopping today in Romans. You can already see, as you read through that, line by line, you're like, this is dense. There's a lot jam-packed into what Paul is saying in every single verse. And so that's, it's probably good that we're only going a few verses at a time here. But first, let's talk about Paul and the law. That's why I said the first part of the sermon is Paul and the law. So how does Paul interact with the law? First, it's probably helpful for me to give a little bit of a definition of the law. How does the Bible use this term called the law? Okay, so you're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament. You're going to see it throughout the New Testament. The biblical authors keep referencing this thing called the law. Okay, in Hebrew, the word is Torah. In Greek, I think there's a few different words, but the one that Paul is using here is nomos. And in Hebrew, Torah... It literally means like direction or instruction, and even some would argue it means like a way of life, okay? Uh, so direction, instruction, that's what Torah, the law, the word law in Hebrew means. But when the biblical authors are using this word, the law, they are referencing the first five books of the Bible, which for the Jewish people were foundational. So they're referencing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And these five books were foundational for the life of the people of God. It was how they knew right from wrong. It was how they knew what to do in order to display who God was to the world, which is what God wanted Israel to do, was to display who he was to the world. And he said, do this by following the law. Now, when biblical authors also say the law, they don't just mean the Torah often. They also mean more specifically the commandments in the Torah. So if you read the first five books of the Bible, what you're going to find is you're going to find a story, a story, a story, a story, and then the people of God often disobeying, and then God giving them some laws. And then they disobey again, and God gives them some more laws, some specific rules. This is, this is where the Ten Commandments came about. This is where uh, God says, love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, this is where these laws come from. And so when the biblical authors say the law, they're often not just referencing the first five books of the Bible, but they're, they're more specifically referencing the, the commandments uh, the 613 or so, depending on how you count them, commandments that you find in the first five books of the Bible that, that the people of Israel used for all of life. 
for how to live life, for the direction of their lives. This is what the people of God use. So when Paul in Romans is, is saying this, th- this word, the law, he's often kind of using it interchangeably. He's using it in a, a, in a robust way, but he definitely at least means the 613 commandments that God gave to his people to know right from wrong and to know how to display who, uh, who God is to the world by living these things out. So that's the law in the New Testament when you hear that, and the Old Testament when you hear that word. So Paul and the law, first part of the sermon. As, you, as you've already heard me say, if you read Paul and you read any of his letters in the New Testament, you're going to find very quickly he is constantly talking about this thing called the law. He is obsessed with the law, it seems like, right? This is Paul. He nerds out over the law because he grew up under the law. He grew up zealously believing the law, and he's going, how do I reconcile this with Jesus? And so if you read Paul and the law, you're going to see that he talks about it a lot. And so how does Paul interact with the law? To describe how Paul interacts with the law, I actually want to talk about how we interact with the law, when we start reading the Bible, when we start learning the Bible, when we start following Jesus, how we all kind of interact with the law. So instead of talking about Paul, I'm really going to talk about us for a second and talk about four stages I think most Christians go through at some point of their life when they interact with the law. When they read the Bible and they see this term called the law and they see how the Bible talks about the law, there are kind of four stages I think Christians go go through, okay? Stage number one is this. I call it the Sunday school stage. Sunday school stage. This is if you grew up in the church or even if you just became a Christian later in life, but I'm calling it Sunday school stage because I grew up in the church. So I grew up in the church. I heard very early on about the Ten Commandments. And I was like, those are pretty good laws. Like, those are pretty good rules, God. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't think we should murder people. Like, that sounds good. Uh, I should maybe honor my parents. I don't know. But, like, you, this is the Sunday school stage where the law, uh, you just kind of go, oh, the law is a good thing. It's like the Ten Commandments. This is like a, this is like a really good uh, thing. Good rules, God. Like, good job. Like, yeah, I don't want anyone to steal my stuff. Like, I, I like these rules. So stage one with any Christian that's interacting with the law is Sunday school stage. It's really going, okay, yeah, those are pretty good rules. Stage two. I call this uh, reading the Bible on your own stage, okay? The reading the Bible on your own stage, and then you could even say uh, point B of this stage is, or you start reading a bit of Martin Luther, and you start hearing how he talks about the law. And so the, the reading the Bible on your own stage, he, here's, here's what happens when you start reading the New Testament, especially on your own. You get to different things Paul says about the law, and you start to go, huh, I don't, what is he saying there? So in, in Romans 7.4, for instance, it's not going to be on the screen, but in Romans 7.4, Paul says to anyone that believes in God, uh, in Jesus, you died to the law. So you go, okay, huh, what's that about? And then you read Galatians 3.10. Galatians 3.10 says this. This is Paul talking to the church. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Oh, okay, all right. (laughs) Under a curse, if I'm under the law, okay. And so what happens when you start reading the Bible on your own in stage two, you go, okay, awesome. I, uh, 
I don't need the law anymore. I'm dead to it. I'm under a curse if I follow it. I got to stay away from the law. And anyways, those rules kind of made me feel guilty. And so I'm kind of glad to read this and I'm excited and I don't, all I need is Jesus so I can ignore the law now. Paul, Paul said, I'm dead to it. He said, I'm under a curse. What I, like, let's, let, let's just ignore the law. And, and here's what I'll say. I imagine a lot of us in this room are probably in that stage. That's probably the stage you're in, where you go, I start reading the Bible, I start seeing what Paul says uh, about the law, and so I'm kind of in this stage two, where I'm reading the Bible on my own. Stage three, and I call this confusion if you keep reading the Bible on your own, okay? Confusion if you keep reading the Bible on your own. I know sometimes you're a new Christian, you just read it the first two years, and you're like, I'm good. But you, if you keep reading past that, you're going to be in this stage of confusion. You'll start to get confused about how Paul talks about the law because although he did say those things that I just read, he also says things like this in Romans 7:12, eight verses after one of those things that I just said. He says this, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. And I just wish I could have been Paul's friend. I'd be like, I don't know if you use a so then right there, buddy. Like, just help me out. So he says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment... Uh, is holy and just and good. So he says the law is really good and holy and from God. And then what Paul does in some of his letters in at least one place, if not a few other places that I just can't remember at the moment, is he will pull an Old Testament law and he will apply it to a New Testament situation. So he does this in 1 Timothy 5. I think he does it in a few other places as well. But he, he, he takes an Old Testament law and he pulls it over to the, the church and he says, yeah, I think you should really be doing this and this and this because of what this Old Testament law says. So when you start to read the Bible enough and you start to keep reading the Bible enough, you start to get confused about what Paul is talking about when it comes to the law. And so in stage three, you're in confusion because you're like, Paul, in some instances, it seems like you're on a crusade against the law. And then in other instances, it seems like you love the law and use it as a tool for Christians in their present day, and you would probably even encourage Christians to use it as a tool in their present day. So stage three, confusion. Stage four of Paul and the law and us interacting with it, you, you find harmony in Paul's teachings on the law. Stage four, you find harmony in Paul's teachings on the law. So... What happens is when you read it enough and when you do the work to understand it, you realize that the way that Paul interacts with the law, although it's complex and hard to understand, there is a harmony. And so when Paul interacts with the law, for Paul, on the one hand, the law is good. And it is a gift from God. You're going to find that all throughout his letters. I'm kind of summarizing a lot of his letters here instead of just showing you. Well, on the one hand, he believes the law is good and a gift from God, and it can even be used as a tool by Christians to understand God and his ways and how we should live. But, on the other hand, he also thinks the law has weaknesses and insufficiencies. That, that what God was doing with the law wasn't the end of the story. That was just part of the story. It was for a particular moment in the story, even though it's still good and can be used by Christians as a tool. So when you, when you read enough of Paul, stage four goes, okay, I find harmony between this. There's a tension for Paul. 
He thinks the law is good and from, and from God and can be used as a tool by Christians, but he also thinks the law itself has weaknesses and insufficiencies. And we'll, we'll see that in Romans 8. We'll see that throughout Romans, and we'll see that in our next two sections that we're talking about, uh, where Paul sees these weaknesses and insufficiencies of the law in particular. So that's Paul and the law, all right? Let's talk about the law and sin, the law and sin. So in Romans, and Romans 7 in particular, Paul talks uh, about the law and about how sin itself interacts with the law. So Paul is making this very complex argument in Romans 7 in particular where he's kind of going, the law itself and sin itself uh, interact. Now I'm just going to do my best to kind of summarize, paraphrase Romans chapter 7 instead of going through it verse by verse uh, because it's complex. But he also does this in earlier parts of Romans. But anyways, what, what he says about the law is this. He says, what the law did for Israel was it seemed to have this effect where it could really point out what sin is, what's right and what's wrong in God's eyes. And in fact, he says the law, for some people, it was so illuminating when someone would read one of these commandments that God would give in the law, those 613. It was so illuminating for some people that they had no idea that something was right or wrong until hearing or reading some Old Testament law. But then, Paul says, sin itself interacts with the law. Sin itself, he seems to be talking through and saying sin itself interacts with the law. And so what we have to remember is when the Bible talks about sin, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, it, it talks about sin far more robustly than often we do. When the Bible talks about sin, it's more than just uh, moral mistakes. It is moral mistakes, but it's more than, than moral mistakes. In the Bible, when sin is talked about, it's often talked about like it's a power. Like it is a power affecting the universe. Like it, almost like it's a conscious power, in one sense, affecting the universe. It wouldn't say that sin is conscious, I don't think. But the way that, that the Bible talks about sin is that it is this power affecting and even at times ruling the world and causing more and more sin. And so sin is this power that Genesis 4, as Genesis 4 puts it, is it's crouching at the door like a wild animal, ready to pounce on anybody. And so we have to watch out for it because sin is this power ready to pounce on us and drag us and lure us into this anti-God way of life. And so when Paul begins to talk about Sin and how it interacts with the law, he thinks of sin not just as moral mistakes, he thinks, he thinks of sin as a power. He thinks, it as the, he thinks of it as this power that is everything wrong with the world. And so um, what Paul's argument is in Romans is that there was something about God's law, the law, that sin was drawn to. The power of sin was drawn to. To paraphrase Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, uh, he says this, it, it's like the law's commandments became a magnifying glass focusing the problem of the human condition into one place, Israel. 
And it seems, the way that Paul talks about it, that sin itself was drawn to the people that knew the law, that had God's law, because sin itself was crouching at the door and it wanted to lure them into breaking all of these specific laws of God. So the law, as Paul puts it, becomes a tool for the power of sin. Again, I'm paraphrasing. The law became, became this tool for the power of sin in the world. It's almost like sin was, was so powerful in humanity that this good gift from, uh, of the law of God gets used by humans to actually figure out new ways to sin rather than the laws helping the people of God to not sin, to avoid sin, to live fully flourishing human lives. And so the law and sin, the way they interact is they become this condemning thing for the people of Israel. The people of Israel, they, they read a law, they disobey a law, and they stand condemned before God. And so Paul realized that, the, the, that how the law and how the power of sin interacted was in this way that, that almost amplified sin. That, that made sin worse. That focused sin, on, focused sin on this people of Israel. And as he begins to figure that all out, he begins to connect the dots to Jesus. Okay? So, third part of the sermon. How Jesus and the law interact. Uh, okay, so let me reread. I want to reread our section again. This is what's great about doing only four verses and not 15 chapters at once. Um, I can reread it a bunch of times. I'm going to reread it. But I want you to pay special attention to verse 3, because this is where we're going to see how Jesus and the law interact. Verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Taking another drink. I'm sorry, I got a dry throat today. So, Jesus and the law. What Paul sees... And what he's explaining here is that although the law is a good gift from God, it was never enough to save everyone from sin and from death. In fact, he says sin was so strong in humanity that the law, the good gift from God, was weakened by humanity. And so as God watches the law condemn his people more and more in their failure to follow it, and even with the power of sin, luring them into specifically break all of these commandments. He says, I've got to fix this. So what he does in and through the people of Israel is he sends a representative through the people of Israel and in the people of Israel. And you, I think you know what I'm getting at. That representative is Jesus. So as the power of sin is drawn to Israel specifically, he sends the perfect Israelite. God in the flesh. Who, who, who lives out the law perfectly, embodies it perfectly. And as Jesus is doing that, he's drawing all sin to himself. And he does, 
And he ends up doing what the law, with all of its commandments about rules and sacrifices, couldn't do. He actually becomes the perfect atoning sacrifice. Because he lives it perfectly. He embodies it perfectly. And sin is drawn to him because the power of sin always wants to use God's good gifts to cause us to rebel and sin more. And so here we have the law and sin. They're just sitting there condemning God's people and condemning everyone. Sin and the law are winning the court case against God's people. So Jesus perfectly embodied and obeyed the law and to cosmically draw sin into himself. To cosmically draw sin to himself. So that the condemnation that the law and sin brought about, he instead could be condemned for. So instead of generation after generation after generation of people being condemned by the law and sin, Jesus takes on all of the condemnation that the law and sin brought, and he takes it on himself so that it could no longer touch another. And he, he has to die to do it. He has to die to do it because sin brings about death. But Jesus is so powerful. He's far more powerful than death. He can even use death itself to defeat death itself. So how Jesus interacts with the law is this. He embodies it perfectly He fulfills its godly requirements, and he can be the perfect, spotless lamb that the law demanded the people would sacrifice year after year. And then sin itself, the power of sin, is also drawn to Jesus because he is the perfect embodiment of the law. And so it is drawn to Jesus in this way so that when Jesus faces the condemnation of God, sin is facing it along with him. So what happens that Paul is talking about in Romans 8 is God's justice and his wrath towards sin is poured out on Jesus, the sin offering, instead of on humanity, instead of on lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb, year after year after year after year. And so the law showed that humanity was guilty. The power of sin amplified that and made it worse And the power of sin was the true oppressor of humanity, wanting to condemn humanity, but Jesus would not allow that to stand. He says, no, I will take the condemnation on myself. I I like how Michael Bird puts it in his commentary. The quote will be on the screen, and honestly, I probably should have just read this quote because it's better than how I put it, but you guys pay me to preach. So, um, But this is how he sums up much better what I just said. He says, Jesus' sacrificial death means that God has condemned sin in the flesh, specifically in the flesh of Jesus. God does not condemn Jesus. More precisely, God condemns sin, but Jesus sucks the poison of sin from us and draws its vile venom into his own flesh, where it is denounced and defeated. That's what Paul's complex theology is trying to communicate here. And that's part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is that Jesus took sin in him and on him in some way, and the consequence of sin without ever sinning himself, 
so we could be free from the consequences of, of sin. And that is a lot more than God's law could ever do for anybody. And that's what Paul is trying to say, okay? So, fourth part of the sermon. What about the Holy Spirit and the law? What about the Holy Spirit and the law? Because as Paul mentions the Spirit here a lot, the series is called Life in the Spirit. So, here, here's, here's what Paul is saying about the Spirit and the law. He's saying, it was really the Holy Spirit and Jesus who together did what the law could never do. They together defeat sin and death. And the Holy Spirit, while that is going on, brings about a law, but it's not a law of sin and death and condemnation, but it is a law of life. It's a law of freedom. Harkening back to the Exodus when the people of God were freed from their slavery. And so the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings a law of life and freedom. And so the Holy Spirit in Jesus made a way for everyone to have life instead of death. Whether you're a Christian or not, all humans have a death problem. And part of the good news of the gospel is he's got life. I think we miss that sometimes. It sounds really kind of like basic and kiddish and whatever, but it's like, it's true. He has life, and the Holy Spirit is who brings that life. So what Jesus and the Spirit brought in was life. Life in the form of not being able to be condemned by sin or condemned by the law or condemned by God himself. And so, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law, it couldn't free us from guilt. The law and sin could only accuse us. The law and sin can only point out that we deserve God's judgment in some way. And sin itself, all it does is kill us. And the Spirit and Jesus brought freedom from God's judgment. Freedom from the burden of guilt that the law and sin brought. The Spirit brought life to a people wrecked by death. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I, know, I know we just we nerded out a little bit there, okay? I just gave you an overview of a lot of Paul's theology, Romans theology, but uh, I'll be honest. If there was one thing... If there's one thing I want you to take away from this passage and from this sermon, and maybe I should have preached differently if so, is that there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. There's none. Because of what Jesus and the Spirit have done over and above the law, over and more powerfully than sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what I want you guys to walk away with. So maybe I should have preached differently today. But that is such good news. There's no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. Maybe you got a bunch of religious voices of your past or maybe even your present in your head trying to convince you you're guilty or you're dirty or you can't approach God. The Spirit says there's no condemnation before God now because of what Jesus did as a sin offering. 
Maybe you've got your own voice in your own head, guilt-tripping you and scaring you and thinking you can't be before God or God's going to get here and he's going to send you to hell. The Spirit says, stop condemning yourself because he doesn't. You, in all your messiness and brokenness and sinfulness, you are safe to approach God because of what the Spirit and Jesus did. You are welcome to approach God because of what Jesus and the Spirit did. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean uh, we never deal with our sin. We do. We do. You see that all throughout Paul's letters too. We are people that do deal with our sin. But here's what's different. We now, when we deal with our sin, we do it from a place of complete security in God. Complete security and complete love. Sometimes to get my kids to admit something, I I hate using my kids as an example, but I'm doing it too much lately. Uh, I'll say, listen, you won't get in trouble. You won't get in trouble if you admit it. And one of the other kids starts saying it to the other kid all the time. (laughs) When I'm like trying to get, hey, you won't get in trouble. You won't get in trouble if you just admit it. I'm like, no, I want to get this kid in trouble. Like, (laughs) but what that kid is showing is is what's true for all Christians. When we deal with our sin now because of what Jesus and the Spirit have done, you are now dealing, dealing with it from a place of complete security in God. Complete love of God. Totally wrapped in his love. God in the flesh, Jesus himself, he absorbed the justice for our sin. So therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ. Now the devil can't condemn you. The religious rulers can't condemn you. And you can't condemn you. And I'm excited about it. Sorry for yelling if that bothers people. But uh, I'm sorry, not sorry type of a thing. And Paul is using legal language here in Romans to tell you that it's perfectly safe for you to be around God now because of what the Holy Spirit and Jesus did on the cross. No condemnation, friends. There's no court case out there that can put you away from God because of what Jesus did as the sin offering. I I went to this conference recently. I went to this conference recently, and they're talking about all kinds of topics, and one of the topics they were talking about is a particular, particular segment of people in our society that don't receive a lot of love, don't receive uh, a lot of friendship, people with uh, disabilities, people with special needs, and uh, it, was talking, it was really just kind of this clarion call to Christians, like, think about that a little bit more. Why, why are our churches not have those with special needs or disabilities in them very much, and so, uh, or why don't we notice them? And so I'm sitting there, I'm listening to these talks, they're very convicting, good talks. Like, I just, I truly feel kind of like the Holy Spirit, like going like, man, Anthony, this is something maybe to press into. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm hearing all these talks, and I'm going, but I don't know if I have anybody in that segment of society in my life. I can't think of anybody. I don't know. I'm going to have to go and, and seek that out. And then I'm sitting there, and I'm going, wait a second. Across the street from me, there, there's a group home of adults with disabilities and special needs. And I go, Anthony, you idiot. <laughs> like, literally across the street. Across the street, right here. 
uh, here's some friends to love. And so uh, I'm at this conference. I'm with some other redemption leaders from across redemption. And I'm telling this story to the Redemption Gateway kids leader named Laura. And, and I, I get to the part and I go, and, and I think I even kind of attributed it to the Holy Spirit. I was like, and the Holy Spirit was like, Anthony, you idiot, come on. <laughs> There's people there, right, in your neighborhood. And I, L- Laura stopped me at some point. Maybe she let me finish. I think she did. And she said, I don't, I don't think the Holy Spirit called you an idiot. I think the Holy Spirit just lifted your head. Laura knew something that I forget all the time. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I internally use condemning language about myself and about how I follow Jesus and how I chase after him and who I'm supposed to love in the world. I use this condemning language in my head. And let me tell you something, it's real motivating. But Laura heard me use that condemning language, and she said, no, I don't think that's what the Spirit said. I don't think that's what the Spirit did. Laura was discipling me into what Romans chapter 8, 1 says. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did God want to point this out to me? Sure, probably. But he didn't want to condemn me while doing it, like I do. And this is part of why this positive self-talk, it's like a huge thing right now, like internally having more positive things about to say yourself, positive ways to relate to yourself. I think it is really popular right now, not only because it's needed, but because that's how God in Christ wants to and does talk to us. So the thing we're all hungering for is complete security and love. Where do you get that? In God, through Christ, because of the Spirit. God doesn't condemn us when we condemn ourselves. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. So church, ultimately, what Paul is getting at here is that although the law is a good gift from God, sin took advantage of it and turned it into a condemning accuser. But through the Spirit in Christ, we now have life and not condemnation. May we realize how true that is. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. You are far too good to us. My heart, God, is just stirred at at what you've done. And just these four verses, how it just is jam-packed with all that you have done. You have created a way for us to have complete security in you. Even though we're not as good as you are, even though we've even damaged our own relationship with you, God, you have made a way for us to sit in your love. You are a good father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice of your son. Spirit, thank you for your work in us. I pray today, God, that we are people formed and shaped by what Paul is trying to get at here, what you were trying to speak through Paul to us. And so God, help us. We love you. We need you. We can barely believe these things sometimes. We need you to heal our minds with your love and security. Amen.